You cannot be serious. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Chris. What's up? Uh, not not too much. We're in the. Uh, I thought we were in the doldrums of tennis, but then uh, one morning when I was up with my kid, I realized that on the computer I could watch Nadal and Djokovic in China. Who won that match, by the way? Uh, Djokovic destroyed him two and three. God damn it! I know. <laughs> Wait. So you don't like? You're like in the I don't like Djokovic camp these days. Uh, I'm kind of more like it's super boring to watch him hit like cross court backhands for four hours. Uh-huh. So I really like when somebody you know can rattle the cage a little bit i watched all the wta matches from china okay and what i watched you... garbinia muguruza um ascend to her proper place in the top 10 i like her a lot yeah yeah i do too she's charming and she's like a really really good player and it, i really like when players who have like a moment right. find a way to have like other moments yes exactly you know yep. like she beat serena a couple of years ago and it was like her first big match and it was in the french open and then she got to the semis at wimbledon this year and now she's had two tournaments in a row where she made a final she lost to venus last week yep. and then won this tournament in beijing and i was like yeah this is cool she's got the whole thing she's got she's charming she's got a good like interesting game it was exciting it seems like also she has enough mean in her you know what i mean yeah ATP tour at this moment is not the most compelling. But yeah, are you Djokovic? Are you pro? I'm pro Djokovic. I mean, I'm more pro Nadal. Although Nadal, yeah. So I like Djokovic. I think he's more interesting than people give him credit for because he's like definitely changed his persona in a way that most people can't. You know what I mean? Like now it's like he's boring. He's not like a dick, which is yeah. how most people thought of him for a <laughs> yeah. long time. Not yeah. that long ago either. No, so, yeah. It's way harder yeah. to go like from like dick to like boring than it is the other way around. Yeah. I think it's the bee pollen, the crazy bee pollen <laughs> he eats and believes like uh, allows him to see through space and time. Or I don't know. This is going to sound so petty, but like he's like your friend who went vegan. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, oh, did you go vegan? I'd totally forgotten. Yeah, um, you're like, oh, sorry, I'm not eating gluten. It's like, are you, come on. Are you really gluten insensitive? Like, who's not gluten? Like, should we be eating pizza? No. Right. Isn't, is the live glu- a little. Is the, is the gluten thing, is that a ripoff? Is that, like, not a real thing? Well, everyone says that that's, like, a euphemism for him juicing. Right. Oh, no, no. I mean, I, by everyone. I mean, like, message boards. But uh, Oh, right. No, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it helps your game. Yeah. Like, it can't hurt. Marty Fish, who we're going to talk about tonight, yes. uh, one of his like major turning points in his career was when he decided to get fit yes. and stop eating like steaks and start eating gluten-free and clean, as they say. Sure. Oh, uh, before we get on to Marty, one, uh, one thing. Uh, Nadal had some outrageous matchy macaroni action going on in China. <laughs> like the top, the shorts, even the shoes. The shoes were like all three of the same colors <laughs> as the rest of the outfit. He did everything but dye his hair baby blue. It's crazy. I what's stopping him? Yeah. Not that much hair to dye. I guess the canvas is a little thin. Right, right. He um, might not recover from that. <laughs> right, and and again, matchy macaroni is something that Caitlin's wife says when you when people's clothes match too perfectly. <laughs> great. Do you think he Nadal is the Jared Leto of the ATP tour? Wow. Why do you say that? Well, I feel like Jared Leto really. Uh, has a lot of like trying too hard outfits. Yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah, uh, I'm on. For I that. mean, Nadal doesn't wear eyeliner yet. <laughs> yeah, hey, he's earned it. A lot of majors. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that could be like the really interesting like third third movement of his career, where he just like gets glam goth. 
<laughs> just decides to get fucking weird. And, and he does like everything he can. He he doesn't play any outdoor tournaments so he can get as pale as possible. <laughs> yeah, it's his vampire uh, denouement. Right. I can't go back to Mallorca. The sun's just too bright there. Um, before we talk about Marty Fish, yeah. who's going to be the subject of our, um, I want to mention two things. Number one, my lady 5.0 team went to Palm Springs. They went without me. Uh-huh. Uh, last weekend because I couldn't go, but um, shout out to those guys. They made uh, they made it to the semis of our flight, which is pretty notable because usually teams from Eastern, which is representing New York City where we uh, live, normally get crushed by the warm weather states. Uh-huh. So the fact that we even made the semis is pretty good. Uh, they ended up losing to both Florida and Southern California, I believe. Yeah. Um, but they made it to the final four. Shock. I thought I thought I was yeah. going to get uh, a, some sort of ball, a gold, silver, or bronze <laughs> ball, but I did not get one of those. Right. But why? that's still pretty impressive. Why are the West Coast and South, like, why would that continue through adulthood? I think, honestly, I think they just practice all the time. Like, yeah. it's so hard for our team to practice. It costs right. so much money, and it's like an hour and a half each way to Queens. Yeah. You yep. know? Yep. Like, if you have a court in your backyard, I think you're just like, you know. Right. Think about how good I could be. I could, sub- I could be on the pro tour. <laughs> Probably. Sure. Um, second of it, my mother is in town, and she brought, she likes to dredge up old letters uh-huh. that I, I wrote. So I wrote, uh, I have one in front of me. I wrote it in 1990. Um, talking about my professional career, uh, when I'm 12, the 1992 Olympic games will be held in Barcelona, Spain. Two years later at 14, I plan to turn professional. (laughs) I will play professionally for two more years until the Olympic games come to Atlanta in 1996. Then I will enter either the Canadian or the American team. Um, when I get to the Olympic games, I hope to play against my idols who include Colin, Steffi Graf, Chris Everett, Gabriella Sabatini, Jennifer Gabriotti, Monica Sellis, Boris Becker, and Michael Chang. I obviously wasn't clear at uh, age 10 how draws worked and that that there was a male and female separation. (laughs) Sure. I hope to play second, if not first, in the overall competition. So, you know, big dreams. Yeah, sure. Wow, Chrissy Everett, kind of reaching back there. She she kind of sticks out as a little before the others, huh? Yeah, I mean, I was 10, so I guess I didn't really understand how uh, retirement worked because I think even at that at that late stage at 1990, Chris Everett must have been 50. Right. Like, <laughs> she was like barely playing any more tennis. I like uh, I like the idea that that, that uh, you were like, I don't know, I could play for Canada or the U.S. They're equally difficult to land a spot on the totally. Olympic team. No big deal. I'll probably play against <laughs> Boris Becker. <laughs> Who can say? Exactly. The, what this teaches me is that cursive is really hard. Uh, and also that I had very little understanding of how anything functioned. But, right. you know, my love of tennis has not waned exactly. all these 25 years later. And at that time, not as unusual to have, like, a 16-year-old be good, be, like, a top five yeah. player. So In 1990, Jennifer Capriati was beginning her ascent. Right, right. Sounds totally crazy now, and tennis is probably better for the fact that that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, my God, so much better. Yeah. But, you know, a girl can dream. Instead, what do I have? A tennis podcast with you, Chris. <laughs> no, wait, hey, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I ended up, um, I, uh, you know what? I went to college. I'm literate. Uh, you know, things worked out for me. Exactly, right. Whereas Anka Huber can't read. Sad story. <laughs> Illiterate. The, the subject of another podcast. <laughs> yeah. So so what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to talk about Marty Fish, but before we do, um, one of my favorite podcasts in the world is called The Illusionist. Have you ever heard it? I have, yes. It's great. It's like a linguistics podcast. And Helen Salzman, who's awesome, happened to do something about tennis, about the definitions of tennis. 
And we thought we would uh, reach out to her and ask her if we could play it for you here. So she did. She obliged. um, And she says she does not know anything about tennis, but she was delighted to investigate a little bit into the origins of the sport. And here it is. Right now, it is Wimbledon. And even if, like me, you don't care about tennis, this is exciting because of etymology! Albeit somewhat contested etymology, as can be found for the word tennis, which turned up around the 14th century and most likely came from the old French tenir, meaning to hold, or more precisely, the Anglo-French imperative form of the verb tenets, meaning hold or receive or take, which servers used to shout at their opponents. At the time, the game was called La Palme, because it was played by hitting the ball with the palm of the hand. But it's understandable that if spectators observed players shouting tenets all the time, they might assume tenets was the name of the activity. But if that's true, surely by now tennis would be known as... It took a while for tennis to become the racket sport we're familiar with now, which is widely attributed to Major Walter C. Wingfield, who first demonstrated it in 1873. It wasn't called tennis at the time, he named it after the ancient Greek for ball skills, spheristike. Apologies if I didn't pronounce that correctly, but in my defence, nobody else used to pronounce it correctly either. Not being ancient Greeks, they'd pronounce it spheristike, or even sticky, so the game was soon rebranded lawn tennis. To distinguish this newfangled tennis, devotees of old, hand-based, walled court tennis called that real tennis. Alright, part two... Of the podcast, we have another Never Number One, and uh, this, this one has what we call in the biz a news pig. Mm. Uh, this is Marty Fish, who retired after the U.S. Open. Quietly? Would you say quietly? Yeah, pretty quietly, yeah. considering. Right. Uh, because I think in the Serena thing, there was no uh, air left for any other American storylines. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and people have kind of been trained not to pay attention to the American male side of uh, the draw in Grand Slams for quite a long time. So (laughs) this probably didn't get the attention it might have deserved, because I think for a time, Marty Fish um, was uh, at least the number one American male on the Pro Tour. And it looked like he might be able to sort of continue uh, Andy Roddick's, uh, you know, the excitement Andy Roddick elicited in the early aughts. Right. And he was... was Interesting, like, he kind of looked, especially after he lost weight, he kind of looked like, when he was wearing that head, the, the headband, it would be like, what if one of the misfits from Caddyshack <laughs> actually got on the PGA Tour? Like, he didn't look the part, which was awesome. And he was an American male that, like, kind of didn't have one weapon, you know, no. which is, like, odd. Seemed like a good dude. Had a little, like, he, like, a thoughtful frat boy. That was yeah. kind of the image yeah, he cut he out there. Yeah, he kind of had a fratty butt. Yeah, totally. And he and Roddick and Blake and all those guys were tight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he was a bro of the Pro Tour. And it was interesting because he had this look where he wore, like, a headband and kind of, like, billowy shirts even after that became passe. Right. And he wore low socks. That's the thing. Which is a real specific thing, right? right? Which, let me guess, you hate. Uh, As a traditionalist, it's very (laughs) hard to stomach that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, and he, right to the end. The low socks. Like, Never gave it up. I know he had some health issues. Was could could the low socks have been a health thing in any way? Because it's hard to explain otherwise. Like he had poor circulation in his lower calves. I don't know. He had sort of spindly little legs. No, there's no excuse for them. It <laughs> other than he's kind of a bro who right. probably would rather have been like playing pickup basketball. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. But, um, 
you know, but credit to him, like, like you say, he didn't really have any discernible weapons. He kind of had this game that looked like you said it. He kind of looked like a above average D three college athlete. Right. Like his game wasn't particularly pretty and it no. was kind of like your friend who's like kind of surprisingly good at tennis. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. He's he's like the guy who looks like he played juniors um and kind of burned out at a D1 school and then you get him out there and you're like, "Oh, actually he dominated at SC." Like he was good. This right. this guy looks like a burnout but is not a burnout. I mean, he got to number 7 in 2011. Yeah, he had a really good run after yeah. um, he got really fit. So he kind of had this like middling career. He was like, okay. And then he decided to really dedicate himself to the game, got like stopped eating gluten, started running, got really, uh, you know, mentally focused right. and cracked the top 10 and had a year that was like really, really great. But then something kind of terrible happened. Which is what, Caitlin? Well, he started being besieged by anxiety attacks. Yeah. Yep. Like crippling, like panic attacks, like the yes. kind of panic attacks where you think you're going to die because your heart's going to like explode out of your chest. Yes. Yeah. It's really heartbreaking. Uh, and you wrote about it in a really awesome way. Um, yeah. I've kind of been dubious about this Players Tribune uh, publication. You should that be. <laughs> Derek Jeter started after his retirement from the Yankees. And the idea is it's like athletes in their own words. Yeah. And I've been reading a lot of it and it's not great, but I'm, you know, I'm sure it'll find its footing. But I actually thought the one that Marty Fish wrote about his anxiety disorder was really compelling. It was. It was great. He's, uh, he's like clearly a very thoughtful, like grown up. <laughs> yeah. And it's really like shitty because that's that year that he cracked the top 10. He beat Andy a couple of times to sort of become the top American man. Yep. And he beat a number of like other pretty good players and then was on the way to playing Roger Federer, like literally en route in a car to the U S open playing Roger Federer in like the fourth round and started panicking yeah. and pulled out. Yeah. Like literally just pulled out of the tournament. Yeah. And that sidelined him for, I think, what did you say? Like 18 months, like two years. Right. And he didn't have, I mean, what, what, what made it sort of heartbreaking was like, he didn't have 18 months to give away at right. that time. You know yeah. what I mean? Totally. Yeah. You know, this is like a person who like to keep yourself in peak physical condition at like age 31 at the time is like, you know, pretty tough. And like to be peaking in your career at that moment is amazing. So you really have to take the the most of it. And, you know, the way he described it was anxiety took his job away from him, his livelihood away from him. And like, you know, it's sad when players get injured and it's arguably even sadder when like their own sort of psyche turns against them. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz like you need that and he said it's basically just like the pressure of feeling like now he had achieved so he had to keep achieving to sustain it. It right. was what undid him. Yeah. God, it's terrible. To like Yeah, it was really sad. Yeah. Actually. To, to like do all that work and like kind of turn it around and then realize that on the other side of the pressure was more pressure, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Really um, made me think about like people who like I've worked with who've kind of left jobs for sort of mysterious reasons, and you kind of wonder like, oh, where did they like left for like a part time job somewhere else, and this mm-hmm. and that. And I just thought like, yeah, there's probably a story behind each one of those. You know, it's yeah. just less dramatic than in tennis, but right. people yeah. suffer at their jobs all the time with for mental health reasons, and they don't write about it like this. Yeah, and I thought he made a really good point though. I thought it was like really like an elegant way to describe it, which is just like, you know, people might think of this as me being weak, but actually, uh, I'm choosing to see this as a strength that I'm sharing it and to talk about it because people don't talk about this kind of stuff very much. Yeah. And I, I agree with him. Like, you know, 
God knows that having, you know, you're criticized like crazy as a professional athlete for every reason. Right. And then to have something that like is theoretically perceived as being, you know, weak or, or vulnerable and then bringing it to light. Like he didn't have to ever talk about it. He could have just nope. been like, Oh, you know, I, it didn't come together for me. I'm going to retire. Right. So like kudos to him. Like he, he, he kind of surprised me. Like I kind of thought he was just this kind of bro with headbands who was like an okay ish player. Yeah. Um, and he's, he, he like wrote this like really thoughtful, uh, really, I think ultimately helpful, interesting piece that's going to hopefully contribute to like the dialogue of what it takes to be, you know, performing at a high level in athletics or whatever. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's like has extra gravity. Like I was kind of saying, because like it, like a lot of people, it's like, I mean, he was only like in his early thirties. Like a lot of people have, have like a lot of time to sort of recover from that, but like, it's so unforgiving, like that happened and then his career was over. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it kind of makes you wonder like, what are you going to do with the rest of your days? Right. But it's also interesting and maybe nice like not to put a a nice spin on it but like maybe it's a nice thing that like he faced this thing and talked about it and like now he can sort of go into the next phase of his life like kind of unburdened you know yeah like i hope that for him you know i never was a huge fan of his and and there are plenty of people who are i tried to actually pretty hard to book for this conversation a fish head um which is what marty fish's fans used to call themselves and it's hard to do because there's actually not very many i wrote a lot of people on facebook in a pretty creepy way (laughs) and a lot of them were like well i like marty but i would not consider myself a fish head yeah um you know uh, they would have had a different song in 2011 (laughs) you know what i mean they would have been all yeses these guys were fish heads (laughs) they just didn't want to own it this moment but i let me let me end by saying this I was never a fish head before, but, you know, maybe this essay made me one. I think so. Yeah, right. I mean, it's awesome. He could be, like, I mean, I could see him, like, becoming a commentator or something. And, like, now I would, like, totally be like, all right, I'm going to give Marty Fish a shot as my commentator. Because I think, oh, yeah. like, clearly he's, like, capable of, like, insight. So Yeah. Much like when Andre Agassi uh, sort of deigns or is cajoled into the studio yeah oh, he's great like hearing him call a match this right. happens so rarely but it's so profound yeah. and it's not it is not hindered at all by the fact that he wrote so thoughtfully about the pressure of playing at that level and like right. all the sort of self-doubt and all the family stuff yeah. and like i think you're right i would love to hear what marty fish would have to say whereas i never would have said that beforehand i would have been like what's that guy gonna add to the mix like oh <laughs> he thinks the guy's socks are too high you know <laughs> but now That's i'm like one note yeah <laughs> yeah special shout out this week helen zalsman thank you for participating in our podcast we love your show uh and thanks for taking time out to linguistically explain a subject so dear to our hearts thanks right. for listening to the main draw All right. Later on, Caitlin. Bye. Bye.